Good morning. Uh, as Chris said, I'll just pray for us. Lord, we open our hearts and our minds to you, submit them to you, and ask you to come and speak into our very souls. In Jesus' name, amen. A question for you to start with. What does God need? Okay, us, our worship. Somebody saying nothing. Sounds a bit harsh. <laughs> but it's true. Uh, if God needed anything, he would not be God. He would not be almighty he would not be the one from whom everything comes. If God needed anything, if he needed us, if he needed our worship, if he was affected or changed by what we do, he would not be the one who is unchanging and who is from the beginning to the end. He is not affected or changed, rather, by what we do or who we are. He is what he is. He is what he always was. Before the beginning, God was and was in communion with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He was in relationship, in sort of community, in submission and love and authority and power with no need of anything from outside of himself. But he created. He created from within himself all things that are. And he created us. Which is good news that he doesn't need us. He doesn't need our worship because in that comes our freedom. Because, because he's not changed by our response, our response is totally free to us to choose how to respond to the one who made us and to respond to what he does, what he has done and who he is. Uh, I'm going to start with a passage that wasn't on uh, my list for today, uh, which is from Job. Now, you've got to be very careful uh, when quoting from Job, because all sorts of things are said, some of which sound wise, but are subsequently said to be not wise. So with Job, you've got to be very careful. It's an amazing book, and there's so much in there. But I'm starting at the safe end, which is right at the end, chapter 38, because it is what God says of himself. So I'm going to go through that. So, oh, Job, uh, you probably know the story. Job has sat with his friends who have tried to comfort him very badly uh, over all of the terrible things that have come upon him. And this is the Lord's response when he speaks. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? 
On what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light and where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the path to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Have you entered into the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail? which are reserved for times of trouble, for days of war and battle. What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed, or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens? When the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? Who gives the ibis wisdom or gives the cockerel understanding? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together? Uh, the theme of today's talk is faith and promise. Uh, now, what has all of what I've just said got to do with that? Well, the thing is, of course, a promise is only as good as the person who makes it. Uh, if I were to promise you that in 20 years' time I'll come back here and I'll be such and such, or if I promise to be here in 50 years, if you know the deal, uh, our promises are sometimes good, sometimes not so good. It totally depends who's making them. If a builder promises to be with you next Monday at 10 o'clock, <laughs> who knows? But what we're going to look at is the promises of the one who created everything, including us. There's something that really struck me from the Job uh, passage as well as I read it through preparing for this which 
I'm not going to dwell on, but it was uh, towards the end. Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens? It just jumped out at me in terms of uh, we are created in God's image, male and female. And God there says that both are within him. That's just a little aside. You can dwell on that. Uh, that's in Job 38. Uh, the Old Testament is in many ways the story of one family. Uh, most of you will know this, but really it starts with Abraham in Genesis 12. Uh, and I've heard it said that everything up to Genesis 12 is just getting you to the point of Abraham. And from there, it looks at various of Abraham's descendants, but obviously through Isaac and Jacob, through Jacob's 12 sons that become the tribes, and the whole history of the people descended of Abraham that became Israel. And then it is the story of them. So first of all, Abraham, why is he such, why is he the titan of the Old Testament? Why is he the father of the people? Why is he the father of God's chosen people, which is absolutely clear through the Old Testament? Uh, because God appeared to him and gave him a promise. God chose him for whatever reason that we don't know. It's easy to look at Abraham in the stories in Genesis and see some of the things he did and go, this, he's a strange guy. He did some weird stuff. You know, twice, twice, he said to his wife, oh, pretend you're my sister because I think they might kill me in this land because you're beautiful. And then she's taken into the king of that country's house to be his wife. But this is the one that God chose. God appeared to Abraham and said, I have chosen you and I will make you a father to many nations. And his response was one of faith in that promise. Uh, Romans and Hebrews, which are both uh, in the New Testament massive books that uh, go into and open up what salvation is, how God did it, and how we share in it. Both refer to Abraham uh, at quite some length. So Romans 4 and 5 especially talk about this, that Abraham's response in faith to God's promise was what made him so special. And it was from his response to that promise that led to the family becoming this amazing chosen people who became a million in Egypt and came back to take the promised land. Cutting short the development of them, so shortly before they go to enter the promised land, which is going to be a big fight, uh, Moses gives them the big sermon shortly before he dies, which is Deuteronomy. And he actually predicts in that what, what they'll be like. He gives them plenty of instruction as to how to live by faith as God's people. And there are some key things. But towards the end of Deuteronomy, he also says, 
this is actually what you're going to do wrong. These are the things you will do, and this is what will happen. And he actually foretells exile even then. But the thing was that they were to be God's people and to worship him alone, to have him as their God, and that this was through faith in the promise. It was not by following the law, and again, need to read Romans about this, uh, but they were to have no other gods. They were to make no idols. They were to worship him alone, and in effect, to trust in him alone. But as we know, that's not what happened. Uh, and it's easy to look at uh, the stories in the Old Testament and see what the people of Israel did, the gods they bowed down to, the mistakes they made. But actually, they are just uh, a reflection of us in many ways. Human nature hasn't changed. So the thing that happened to them especially was they went in under promise and God went before them and they did Jericho and they had some major victories. But almost straight away, some of the things that uh, Moses had told them not to do happened. And that was that they start worshipping the gods of the land that they enter. And I think that's because we, we're constantly on the lookout for promise. We're constantly on the lookout for what is going to make me feel good, what will deliver. Uh, and they were the same. So somehow, what they saw in their neighbours, they thought, that looks good. I need some of that. And they went and joined in the worship of Baal and eventually Molech and other gods. Uh, because there was something there that they saw that was attractive and they thought would give them what they were looking for. And I, you probably don't need me to tell you that some of the things that are all around us, except we don't necessarily see them. Because there are things of promise that we look to all the time and put our faith in. Whether it's, uh, and I'm not having a go at anyone or anything here, this is just a reflection, some thoughts. So, you know, we may have uh, the promise of even, say, the NHS, that it will keep us alive and well, and that it will give us comfort uh, the promise of enough money in the bank will, again, make us comfortable. means we don't have to worry. It will ease our mind. Uh, the promise of uh, our kids being at the right schools, that will mean they'll have successful careers. That will mean that they're happy. It will mean that people will see them as successful and they will look good. I've got a list of all sorts of other things that I don't think I'll go into. Uh, you know, yeah. But it, it's not even worldly things alone. But say the promise of religion by adherence to rules that will make us feel that we're doing good or being right or worse, that we are better than other people. Like I say, I'm not having a go at anybody. These are all things that I've seen myself do. Uh, that's where they've come from. And... It's like we're always hungry. We're always looking for something that will deliver to us. We're always on the lookout for these things that promise something to us. And we so uh, 
open to it and attuned to it, that whether it's a TV ad telling us that if we use these nappies, we'll be better parents and consequently our kids will be happy and again, we're better, uh, or some of the other things I've mentioned. And uh, this, this is a bit graphic, but don't worry. So, you know, if you take something like this, that contains all sorts of promise, doesn't it? Of <laughs> Sorry, if you're listening to the recording, there's a huge bar of dairy milk here. Uh, promise of, of delight or pleasure through eating that thing. But the thing is, promises don't always deliver what they promise. And when we're going through life consuming these promises of the world, it's like eating this stuff all the time. And I'm sure we've all been there at Easter or Christmas, and you eat so much of that and it felt good at the time, or the appeal of it was massive. But when you've had a lot of it, you sit there going, I don't feel good. And really wish you hadn't. And again, this was something that uh, I realized of myself in the last few weeks. And this is where it gets a, a bit graphic, that when we're believing in these promises, when we're buying into them, whatever it happens to be, it's like eating rubbish all the time. And eventually, you get so bunged up in your soul that the picture that came to me was it was like a fatberg in a sewer. And I'm sorry. Uh, but you get so congested with this rubbish because, to be frank, it's not passing through. It's filling you up with some kind of rubbish that sits there in you and just makes you feel dreadful. You feel immobile. Uh, you don't want to do anything. And that's the fruit of the things that we've put our faith in. Whereas uh, the promises of God are like good food that we eat and satisfy us, but they're full of fiber and they flush through. That when they're done, they empty us so that we are ready for the next promise that we're ready for the next thing. But we have to keep, by faith, eating those things, consuming those things that are good, that are of him who was from the beginning and who made us and chose us and gave you freedom to respond as you wish. Uh, there are lots of promises in the Bible. Uh, and... They are woven, obviously, throughout the Bible. And I'm not going to go into any in particular. You've probably got some of your favorites. Now, like I said with Job, though, you have to be careful about taking a promise out of context, making a fridge magnet out of it, looking at it and think, yep, that's the thing, and that's going to make me happy. I'm not saying don't take a verse and memorize it because it is special and it is a promise for you. Because when God speaks, his word is often specific for a time and a people, but yet it also speaks eternally because 
he has no beginning and end. His word speaks all through time. Uh, I'm just saying that something like, say, Jeremiah 29.11, that you probably all know, that I have plans for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, Taken out of context, people could read that and go, ah, God wants to make me prosperous. I'm going to be wealthy and comfortable, and it's all going to be smashing. But that passage, that short half a sentence, comes from a letter written to those who had been carried off from their own land to be slaves many miles away. It was a letter to those who had been dragged off into slavery. And it was to say to them, I know you're suffering, but the time will come when this will end and I have good plans for you. So it's important to take the context. One final passage to look at uh, and promise. And like I say, it's for you to go through scripture and ingest the promises that are there for you uh, they're woven throughout it, uh, but you have to feed on that. What would you say is the most famous or best-known verse, certainly in the New Testament? Yeah, so I got both responses there. John 3.16, and uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his... Um, um, there we go that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I think, well, certainly most of you at least, knew that verse and what it said. The reference and what it said. Do any of you know what comes immediately before this? What comes immediately before John 3.16? There would have been a klaxon go off, but the audio doesn't work on my laptop. Uh, you are correct. Oh, I meant to say before I started that you could all put your devices away so you couldn't search it. But does anybody actually know what those verses are immediately before John 3.16? Joe Claire has got a phone in her hand. I hope she's not looking it up. Oh, no, she's doing text messages. <laughs> so what comes before is actually, it, it looks slightly obscure. This is what comes immediately before, because verse 16 is actually a reiteration of what Jesus said before this to Nicodemus. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. I'll let you ponder on that a second. I must have read that many and many a time and thought, what is this talking about? And this is where reading scripture helps to make it all fit together. But actually, I got understanding of this years ago from Watchman Nee's book, The Normal Christian Life, uh, which is jam-packed full of stuff, but you can't read it quickly. So this references something in Numbers 21. Uh, it's when the people of Israel are wandering around the desert, doing the 40 years that they were never meant to do, uh, and typically moaning. So 
they'd just defeated, uh, I can't remember now. Sorry, they were having to go around Adam uh, and they started complaining. So they had just beaten one king, then they had to go a long way around, a bit of a detour to avoid Adam because they wouldn't let them pass through. And the people complained and said, you brought us out into this wilderness to die and we hate this, uh, I can't remember what they call now, detestable food, which is the manna. So again, they're not focusing on the promise that they are going to a land that God has sworn to Abraham and his descendants to give them. They're looking at the circumstances. And the Lord sends snakes amongst them. And if they're bitten by a snake, they start dying. So those who are bitten are under a, a curse or a sentence of death. God says to Moses, make a bronze snake, put it up on a pole, and those who look at the snake can be healed and will live. Now, it's really quite odd. It's not that the snake has any magic properties. Uh, it, it always struck me as such a strange thing. But it's also, as so many things in the Old Testament, it's a precursor. It's a mirror of what's to come as well. So it wasn't the snake. It wasn't magic that healed them. It was their faith that looking at the snake would heal them and allow them to live, though they were filled with the venom of death. This is what Jesus quotes to Nicodemus. And he says that the Son of Man, who in the verse immediately prior to this, says, Jesus says nobody's ever gone into heaven except the Son of Man. So he's told him, I am he and I've been to heaven where no one else has been. And that the Son of Man must be lifted up on a cross like Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so that whoever looks at him may have eternal life. So that's what he says here. And so verse 16 is simply a reiteration of the same thing. Uh, and that is uh, the promise. It's the promise of eternal life, which is transacted and received through faith by looking at the cross and that it's what we look at in terms of promise and put faith in to step into that actually results in eternal life. Amen. <laughs>